All right. Well, welcome Coastline family and those that are just visiting uh, online. Um, we are here with our uh, questions and answers night. So this is uh, something we do on the last Thursday of the month um, uh, at seven o'clock out here at the church. Again, we encourage people to come out here and partake in this if you're able to, but if you're tuning in online or watching it after the fact, we're glad you are. And the purpose of this night is really just to answer any question that somebody might have. There is no stupid question or question that shouldn't be asked. You can ask whatever you want, and uh, we will do our best to use the Bible to answer it. And if it's something that isn't answered in the Bible, we have no problem saying we don't know, um, because really what God says about things is, is the only truth we can be sure of. So that's the only thing we're attempting to do, really. So um, we have some questions tonight that uh, have been submitted by different people in the church. And so um, each of us has been assigned a question. And uh, we definitely encourage people, again, you can submit questions at any time and they just kind of get added to a running list. And we go in the order of how they're being submitted and trying to answer them. So eventually your question will be answered. So go ahead and ask them. And if you have a follow-up question while we're um, answering these tonight, you have some options as far as like there's a number on the screen that you can text and I'll, I'll get that question and if we have time, we'll, we'll try to answer it while we're, you know, answering, while we're here answering tonight, any follow-ups. And we've got some good ones. So I definitely encourage you, if you have like a legit follow-up question, ask it. Um, and uh, if you want to submit that question to me directly and you have my number, you can do that. I'm not gonna give my number out on TV though. So, um <laughs> All that to say. But um, so tonight we have uh, myself, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Coastline. Uh, We have one of our assisting pastors, Michael Slivkoff. We have one of our elders and our men's Bible study teacher, Eric Curtis. And then we have our youth pastor, um, Marcus Handy. So uh, without further ado, uh, somebody should pray before we actually get into the word. So I'm gonna assign that to Eric Curtis (laughs) tonight. Father, we just thank you for tonight. Lord, thank you that this is the day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And we are glad to be here and glad to be in your word, Lord. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the questions that have been submitted. And um, we just acknowledge right now, Lord, that we have nothing good in us, nothing um, that can answer any of these questions in any of us um, in and of ourselves. But we know we have your word, and we thank you for that, that you um, you have everything pertaining to life and godliness for all of us. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So please, Lord, tonight, as we attempt to answer these questions, would you light our path, as it were, and uh, may your Holy Spirit be moving in us and in all who are listening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, um, Let's go ahead and start with uh, Marcus is the question he was assigned. And that question is, I've heard Christians talk about the rapture, but the word is nowhere in the Bible. And it sounds pretty sci-fi. What is the supposed rapture and what does the Bible teach about it? Thanks, Pastor Chris. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I appreciate this question. I'm glad to have the opportunity to address it. And I do want to start out with an encouragement and this is kind of an encouragement along the lines of the heart behind why we do this. Um, we hear people talk about a lot of things. B 
be they in the Bible, um, and that's what we're we're concerned about. Could be the rapture, could be something else, right? And we might have a strong gut reaction to that, you know, oh, that doesn't sound right or or whatever. But I guess where we're coming from with this whole night is, hey, let's run these things to ground. Let's see, is it in the Bible? And if so, what does the Bible say? And that's the whole heart. Uh, we want to be like um, in Acts 17, 11, there was a group of Jews that got a commendation, the Bereans, and it says here, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica <laughs> because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so that's what we're trying to do here. Um, and so this question is about the rapture of the church. So let's, let's dive into the actual question. Thank you for whoever asked it. Um, but that's what we want to do. We want to, uh, we want to dive into the Bible. So here's the question. It's about the rapture. So here's what I'll say about the rapture. I'll get to the, it's not in the Bible at the end, but the subject and the substance of the literal event referred to as the rapture, right? And the rapture, that, that's a word in English that means caught up or to be carried off, right? That, that is a biblical event, a literal biblical event, and it is in the Bible. So um, it's explicitly described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and um, we're going to actually look at that scripture here in a minute in a little bit of detail. But it's also described in 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 50. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to just give you a little context, and then I'll read the passage in question. So in, the, in chapter 4, verse 1, here's what Paul says. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that, that you do so more and more. So the context of this chapter is basically, hey, I want you to keep pleasing the Lord more and more. And so that's where we find this section on the rapture. And I'll point out how those things are connected. So if we skip down to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. I'm going to pick it up there and start reading. So I'm reading from the ESV. So if you have a different version, it'll sound a little different. But uh, this is verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's, that means people that have passed away, right? Um, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So this is how it's connected to abounding more and more in the, in the way that we ought to walk to please the Lord. If you're wrapped around the axle with grief or hopelessness because you're not informed about what happens to people, believers, after they pass away, then it's going to hamper your ability to abound. So that's why this is being explained. That's why it's important because it's, a, it's about the hope that we have in Jesus and the promises that he has given us. Okay, so continuing in verse 14, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Underline that, caught up. I'm going to come right back to that. Um, but that's what the word rapture means. 
okay? We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So supposed to be an encouraging passage to let us know that the people that have passed away are with the Lord and they're going, to be, they're going to be resurrected. And we are also going to be caught up in the air with the Lord at his coming at the, at the time of the, the trumpet of God. And we will be changed and transformed. We'll be with the Lord. So it's supposed to be a hopeful encouragement to the brothers, right? It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't, don't let grief and hopelessness overtake you because you're sad. Um, you're grieving like those who have no hope, okay? So... Just to close out um, the, the idea as whether or not this is in the Bible, we can see in 1 Thessalonians 4, specifically verse 17, that um, the rapture or the catching up, the, the being caught up in the air to meet the Lord, is a plainly described biblical event where believers are caught up in the sky to meet Jesus. And uh, this is the substance of the subject called the rapture. Now, um, the question said this, this thing is not in the Bible, this word rapture is not in the Bible, and it is true, the word rapture um, is not in any English translation. However, um, we get our English word rapture from the Latin root word rapio or rapio, uh, meaning caught up, which also means caught up, right? It means the same thing, so the substance is important which is conjugated rapturo in the Latin translation and rapidemir in the Latin Vulgate. So anyways, the, those, all those words mean the same thing caught up. The Greek um, New Testament translates that, that word harpazo, which also means caught up. So I'm um, just to make sure that just because the word rapture itself is not in the Bible, the substance of the event are very biblical, very literal, and very well-connected uh, to the word rapture. So it's an accurate way to describe it. If you wanted to um, read a little bit more about the event, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, like I said, starting in verse 50, that describes the same event and the connection there is the trump of God, and that's talking about the resurrection of the dead. So that's another passage you can look at. For the sake of time, I won't go there. Um, also, as to the timing, there are a lot of ideas in Christianity as, as to when this will happen. Um, and that's, that's another, that's a question for another time, but Pastor Chris has taught on this before, um, and uh, if anybody has any specific questions on what teachings they can get that information, I would be happy to direct you in that direction. So that's what I have. Do you guys have anything to add? That was really concise. <laughs> it would have gone a lot longer, so that's good. Um, but I, I do think I text the guys a link to like a comprehensive teaching on the rapture that we did a few years ago. So um, I think they're gonna put that in the comments section, at least on Facebook. I don't know if we can do that on YouTube, but having said that, um, like Marcus said, we can get that to you and that has some, it goes into more biblical detail just on why we believe what we believe. As a church, we would, we would believe what is called the pre-tribulation rapture view, which is that, this event will happen before uh, what's called the seven-year tribulation period where God's wrath and judgment um, comes down on the earth. Now, we have other people in the church that would subscribe to different, um, a different timing of that event, whether it's mid-tribulation or post-trib. Um, and they, what I want to just say really quickly on that is that there is in no way any type of animosity or thinking that you're less Christian because you have a different 
eschatological view. Um, I want to make that clear. Um, they are dear brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are about the main goal. Uh, they just uh, would describe the events that are happening around uh, Jesus' return differently than, than we would. And so um, uh, we also encourage people that if you have questions about these things, come talk to us about them because we'd love to sit down and look at the scriptures in reason with you. One, one thing that I would say is that it, it, um, it, it grieves me a little bit that uh, anytime somebody wants to talk about things that, you know, for instance, the rapture or eschatology, and they want to talk about what some other teacher teaches, and they don't know what they believe based off the word, or they can't go to the word to back up what they're believing, because at the end of the day, again, the word should dictate what we believe, not what someone else says. So what someone else says might be totally fine and true, but we need to go to the word to make sure that we under, that it is actually what God's word teaches. And I know for myself, um, you know, I, I had a plain face just reading scripture, understanding of a pre-tribulation rapture view before I ever started. I even understood what the word eschatology meant. Um, uh, and... When I came here, I was challenged to get into the scriptures and study them for myself. And when I was the young adult um, pastor or leader and I was teaching through the book of Revelation, that is where my theology was very much um, made firm and sound in in my view in that I studied through it for myself and, and I saw that there was no other way I could interpret it. And and for me, that produced um, a, a sort of, I guess, um, comfort in talking about it with other people that even maybe have disagreeing views um, because I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just, this is what I believe the word says. You know, I can talk about it in, in an educated way because I've studied it out myself and reason with people. And if they want to disagree, they can, we can agree to disagree and that's totally fine. So um, do you guys have anything else to add? Love that point about um, give me a biblical reason for why you don't agree, not in a confrontive way, but just explain your reasoning from the scripture. I love that. I think that's always the conversation I want to have with people. The reason I think that's so important is that part of the question that said, it sounds like sci-fi, like, mm-hmm. like that's an argument. You know, I mean, man, you have jumped the Rubicon if you've already become a Christian. Like the rapture is not your big problem. You believe in a God who raises the dead, who spoke the world into existence with a word who caused a virgin to give birth, you know? I mean, the number of, of uh, things we believe that are indeed supernatural, that are vital to our faith is really, really critical. So I think if I ever run into a place where I'm discarding a doctrine or an idea, just because while that sounds supernatural, well, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's not gonna pass muster on that. So make sure there's a biblical reason, so. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, let's move to Mr. Curtis who has the question, are there some Bible translations we should avoid studying? Hmm, another good question. (laughs) And uh, kind of a loaded question, but uh, short answer I would say is yes. But I'd have to explain this. I'd like to uh, define a couple things first. So um, first of all is, the question, are there some Bible translations we should avoid studying? Okay. Um, we have to define what a translation is. Okay. And just a simple, I think we all understand this. 
Um, it's just a simple act of taking a message or writings of, of some sort from one language and transferring them to another language. And um, believe it or not, uh, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures were not written in English. They were written in Hebrew and Greek and small portions of it in Aramaic, actually. And they had to be translated from those original uh, writings to English so that we have our modern Bibles, English Bibles that we read today. And so um, when it says, are there Bible translations we should avoid studying? If it's a true translation from the Word, from the original manuscripts, from the original scriptures, um, I wouldn't say we should avoid studying it, but what we have today is so-called translations that really haven't been translated from the original word of God at all. They're just what I would call a paraphrase, and they are advertised as a Bible or a translation of the Bible when really it's just one person's rendition of what he interprets the Bible as saying. So those, I would say, quote-unquote translations, I'm going to call them versions, I think, of the Bible, I would probably avoid studying those. Now, just another uh, simple definition. Should we not ever read those Bibles, ever? I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't put a rule on that, saying that you shouldn't read them, but I wouldn't ever use them to do like an in-depth study of the Scriptures to to see what the Word of God says. So um, just to kind of, that's just kind of a little preface here, but uh, to keep moving here, um, we just have to kind of distinguish the two, what a, a par- between a paraphrase and, a, and an actual real translation. Now, the Bible actually doesn't mention anything explicitly that I know of. Um, you guys can chime in about translating, about how to translate, when and why, and, and these things. However, this, the idea of it can be found in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, where it says, So they read, this is when the, uh, the nation of Israel had gone into exile into Babylon, and they had come back into the land, and they're standing up to read the book of the law to kind of reunite the nation, and he says this, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And so, because they were in Babylon for 70 years, the primary language in Babylon was Aramaic, and the Old Testament scriptures were written in Hebrew, and this next generation of Hebrews may not have known that language in the same way it was written. This is, this is assumption. This is not written explicitly, so you can throw it out if you want to, but it's a, reasonable, um, it's a reasonable assumption, I think, that they may have not understood it the way it was originally written, so that the one who is teaching it, reading it, it says they gave the sense, so they... You know, they, whatever, however that looked, they made it so that people could understand it. So that it could have been, they translated it in some way, shape, or form, maybe even paraphrased it so that the people could understand the reading. Um, Another reason this is a good question is, because this is kind of obvious, but I think it's worth saying, is that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we're reading the Bible, we want to be sure we are reading the actual word of God, right? Right? Um, in Psalm, one time, Psalm 119, 105 says, the, the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God's word. And so if we're reading a version of the Bible that's not actually God's word, but it's just a paraphrase or some interpretation that's really not the word of God, then we could be being misled. <clears throat> and so it, it, is important, it is an important question. 
And um, so really quickly, I would, well, it's not going to be really quickly, but I'd like to just say, I'd like to just say, don't study these Bibles, study these ones. But it's not really as simple as that. I think it's, um, I, now I do have a few examples that I'll point out to you that, that I would, in my opinion, I would, I would stay away from studying. But it's important to know what an actual translation really is. And a translation is actually translated from the original writings, like I've said before. And um, also, I think that's a really important aspect of a, of a real translation is they're translated by a group of scholars, people who truly understand and have studied. Probably, you know, they, a lot of these guys have devoted their, their lives to understanding the Greek and Hebrew and the scriptures. And... Um, there, there are sometimes hundreds of people involved in translating um, the, uh, the uh, translations of the Bible we have today. And some red flags when choosing a translation to avoid or choosing a translation to, to study, some red flags would be, is this version or translation from the original scriptures or is it from just another translation that somebody has already translated and it's kind of you know, gets, keeps going down the line, but it's not actually from the originals. And uh, an example of that is the, the Living Bible that was actually a paraphrase from the 1901 American Standard Bible. The, the uh, one man, Kenneth and Taylor, actually paraf- took the ASV from 1901 and just paraphrased it and labeled it the Living Bible. This, I think this was a pretty popular one, like in the 70s, 80s. I, I don't... I'm not really familiar with it, um, but evidently, um, and that's another uh, red flag when looking at translations or uh, what I would call versions is um, who translated it. In this case, it was one guy, this Kenneth and Taylor. And uh, there's some other versions that, that we'll look at that it's one person and they, it's more of a paraphrase. Um, but first off, I would like to just go back to what these uh, other versions or their translations, I would say, the King James Version, even in the 1611 ver- uh, translation, there was 47 scholars that King James had appointed to uh, translate the King James Version in 1611. Now, it's, it's obviously undergone several revisions and under uh, scholarship and boards and, and all that over time. But even the original one had 47 people overseeing this translation. <clears throat> The New King James Version, which was published in 1982, actually, um, they started the translation in 1975, and there was 130 scholars that actually began that work, and it took them seven years, to 130 guys, seven years to translate this work to make sure it was accurate and, and you know, as close to the original as possible in, in the English language. Pretty interesting. Uh, the NIV is uh, another one. It is a, it's an actual translation. Uh, they actually assigned five people for every book of the Bible. And then once those, pe- once those five guys translated that book, they would send it to another five people who would review it. And then after those five people reviewed it, then they would send it to an eight to 12 scholar panel, and they would all kind of look over it and prove it and reapprove it. So there's a lot of oversight, a lot of accountability when we're looking at these, what I would call, actual translations. They're very um, reliable, I guess you could say. Um, again, I could, I could go on 
the Holman Christian Standard had 80 scholars from 17 different denominations, ESV, 120 scholars. The New Living Translation, they had uh, one person for each book, and then they sent it, that would, person would send it to three people, and then those three people would overlook, it would, would review it. If, if two of the three didn't agree, it would go back, and then it would be redone, and they would go to another three, and it was just all this accountability, all this work that goes into properly translating our Bibles that we have today. And just another note, um, even in these, what I would call mainstream translations, King James, New King James, NIV, NASB, um, there's different levels of, I guess you could say, I I hate to call it paraphrasing, but it it kind of is. You have, like on one side of the spectrum, you have very literal, which we would call word-for-word translation. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you would have what is called dynamic translation, or more like a thought-for-thought translation. So word-for-word is literally what it means. If the Greek word is this, then we want to directly translate that over in English to this word. Um, The problem with, and even in the most most extreme word-for-word translations, there are some liberties taken where they will paraphrase or take a thought or a phrase and say, we can't really use these words because it just won't make sense even in the remote even remotely in English, so they have to um, take the phrase and kind of convert it to English so that we understand. And one example was uh, in uh, I, in the Greek, uh, I, I think the original writing for when Mary was found with child was, it was in the belly. So Mary was found with it in the belly. And we, we don't know what that means, right? When, and then the, the English renderings would say she was found with child or found being pregnant. So things like that. Um, and, then, and then we have the dynamic translation, which is kind of on the other side of the spectrum, where it's a little more liberal as far as not necessarily word for word. Sometimes the word for word translations can be a little uh, mechanical. Um, I've heard people call them wooden, sort of. They're kind of just like clunky to try to read through, to understand. Um, so then you have the dynamic translations, which, which takes more of a, you take a phrase or a sentence, and the wording, the original, the wording won't be the same as the original, but that phrase will be directly translated over to an English phrase. And some more dynamic translations, more of a thought-for-thought translation is like the uh, NLT or the NIV. Um, somewhere in the middle of the road is like the Holman Christian Standard, Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so you have a, even in the Bible translations that I would rank as being like top notch, you have you have a, a variance of of um, I guess allowances made, even though they're all very good translations of the original text. Okay, so moving on. Now we have some of the ones that I would say we should avoid studying. The first one I'm going to point out is the Passion Translation, and I would say this is, this is something that Chris sent me this uh, informative uh, podcast about it, which actually was very informative. But um, again, this, this one uh, has the earmarks, has the red flags of this, the Passion Translation. It's called a translation, but it's, it's really not a translation at all. There's one guy who translated it, uh, Brian Simmons. He claims that Jesus came to him and gave him secrets and breathed on him and that he and that Jesus literally 
was downloading messages to him to translate the Bible in a way that had never been translated before. Um, it's, and the reason I bring this up is because the Passion Translation has become very popular, and it's, I think we've probably all heard of it. Um, but there is things that, liberties that he takes where he assumes, for example, in the Songs of Solomon, um, he assumes that the entire book of Songs of Solomon is an allegory, that there's no, um, that it doesn't actually say, that it doesn't actually mean what it says, but that it's all allegorical, that it's all sort of futuristic, prophetic, although there are allegorical, futuristic, and prophetic things in the book, there is also, it also just means what it says. But what he does is essentially um, throws all the literal, um, I guess, interpretations in the trash and literally kind of just uh, translates it with all these allegorical meanings. So it can be dangerous for someone who maybe is a new Christian. Which translate, translating for him doesn't, he's not a Greek scholar, he's not a Hebrew scholar, he's not right. translating it from the original language. He's taking the, the English version of it and basically turning it into his words. Mm -hmm. That would be his definition of translation. Right, so it's not a translation at all, technically. You could say it's a version. Um, and really, I would call it more of a, just like a paraphrase, or you could even call it a commentary. I mean, we read commentaries, we read books about the Bible, we listen to pastors' teachings about the Bible, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to pick on them too much and say you should never look at the Passion Bible, but I would never read the Passion Bible to be actually reading the Word of God. I would read an actual translation, and then if you maybe wanted to get uh, someone else's idea of what a verse means, you could turn to it and say, oh, that's interesting. He thinks it means that. Honestly, I don't see, I, I wouldn't like prohibit that or make any rule against that, but I don't really see any value in it. My opinion is I would just stay away from it. Um, a couple other examples really quick. 1 Corinthians 14.34, where it says, um, it says in the Passion Translation, the woman should be respectfully silent during the evaluation of prophecy in the meetings. They're not allowed to interrupt but are to be in a support role, as in fact the law teaches. And so what he does here is this, this little phrase, during the evaluation of prophecy in the meetings, there's absolutely nothing in the original um, manuscripts that have anything like that. He basically just throws it in there in order to change the meaning of the verse to, to kind of modernize it and say what, what it looks like to me is what he just wants it to say. Another one is Ephesians 5.22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This, is the, this would be a, a, a good translation of it. And the Passion Translation says, um, for wives, this means being devoted to your husbands like you are tenderly devoted to our Lord. And so it doesn't sound all that bad. You know, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay. Wives, this means being devoted to your husband as you are tenderly devoted to the Lord. It doesn't sound that bad, but what it does is it omits the idea of submission completely from the verse of wives submitting to their own husbands. These are just a couple, um, but there's some, there's quite a few things in there that are that I would just avoid um, reading or especially studying it um, to do like an in-depth study of God's word. Okay, another one is um, the Message Bible, one that I would 
stay away from. Again, this is um, translated by one guy, Eugene Peterson. And um, it's, again, not really the type of oversight and accountability that comes from a any one of these other mainstream uh, translations. And I bring these two up especially because they've been popularized in the last, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years, where people, you know, maybe they don't know what a good translation is, and they go, oh, cool, Message Bible, and they start reading it. And it's some of these verses are... Um, are just different than from what the Word of God actually says. One, one more example from the Message Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and then the New King James Version, it says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So what he says here is basically he lists these this list of all these things that will um, keep a person from inheriting the kingdom of God, living this lifestyle. And um, the Message Bible reads it this way. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in the kingdom of God. So he's omitting many of these words and many of these things that will keep us out of God, or sorry, not out of God, but out of the kingdom of heaven. And so it basically, if you were to read this verse and not know what the actual rendering says or means, you would read this verse and go, oh, as long as I'm not abusing anyone or using sex to abuse anyone, or abusing the earth, then I'm good to go. And so um, it doesn't say, it doesn't really refer to in any way, shape, or form of having sex outside marriage. So you could say, well, I'm, I'm not married, but as long as I'm not abusing the sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, then must be okay. It's, it just takes away the meat and the meaning of, of the verse. It changes the context of the verse by turning specific points or words that the word is defining into subjective terms, which leave it up for interpretation. Mm-hmm. That, and, and that changes the context of what's actually being said. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now to the, um, to the defense of the publishers of the Message Bible, they, it actually states right on their website, um, it says, it's not meant to replace your current version of choice. Rather, it is designed as a reading Bible that can give you a fresh perspective on a familiar phrase or passage. So um, Eugene Peterson, the, the guy who translated it, and then even the publishers admit, look, we don't think this should be, um, this should replace your actual translation. We don't even think this should be really taught in churches. But uh, despite all that, it is being taught in some churches People will throw it around, and, and someone who maybe is new to the Christian faith, new to the Bible, they get a hold of it, and they go, wow, this is really cool. I can really understand this, and they start reading it, and then, but they can be, again, misled because it is not the Word of God. And so it's just something we have to be uh, careful of. Uh, the third and final one I'm going to bring up that I would say you probably shouldn't even read is the uh, New World Translation. And this is published by uh, 
the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower group. And this is, uh, this is a little bit unique because it's, not, it's, it's actually not a paraphrase. It, it, it actually is a translation where they, they evidently they translate it from the, uh, some of the original manuscripts. I'm not sure exactly what. And one of the reasons I'm not sure why is because it's tr- they're, uh, they, keep their translate- they keep their translators anonymous because they, quote, unquote, want all the glory to go to God. So you, you can't check out the translators. You can't check their uh, credibility. You, they're, they're just, they're all anonymous. They won't, they won't tell anybody who did it. So, <clears throat> um, but it is allegedly a translation. However, the big uh, difference between this translation is um, they don't just paraphrase certain verses, but they actually change the meaning. They will add words or phrases or take out words or phrases from verses to actually change what is taught because it doesn't, the word of God doesn't actually line up with the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses group. And so this is a, uh, a flagrant uh, tampering with the word of God. Um, and the most notable, one of the most notable uh, examples of this is in John 1, 1, where it says, the word was God. And in the New World Translation, it says that the word was a God. And that, the little, where they just put a little A in there, the word was a God. It's an indefinite article, A or an, and it is not included in the Greek text. I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's not included in the Greek text at all. There's no reason why you would even think or or it should be in there at all, but they just throw it in there because they do not believe in the deity of Christ. Um, they've changed a bunch of other verses about uh, hell. They don't translate um, any words into hell because they don't believe in hell. Um, and then um, the return of Jesus because evidently they believe he's already returned in some way, shape, or form. So they change verses, key verses that we would stand on um, on our uh, doctrine of the deity of Christ um, you know, eternal separation from God and um, that the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They deny those and they tamper the word of God to omit those or alter those. So those are three versions I would point out and say you should avoid studying those for sure. Um, There may be other versions or translations that you should avoid studying, but I hope this kind of just gives an idea of what to look for when picking a translation. Um, to study or or not to study. So, one thing I, I would add, just to those three you pointed out, I'm not about sure about the message, but the, with the passion and the last one, the new, world. new new world translation. So there's multiple warnings. Like something that's a big red flag is there's multiple warnings all throughout Scripture where God says, "Don't take away or add to my word." And those two, and specifically, uh, especially the Passion Translation, it adds chapters. I mean, it it legitly, because supposedly it's a new revelation given to somebody recently by God, and that in itself should be a reason that, eh, I don't think I want to go near that, because it, it explicitly, explicitly contradicts what God says in his word and how they came up with those additional mm-hmm. Uh, the additional verses, the additional chapters, or they took away things. So go ahead if you have something to add. I would just say, too, um, some people wonder this all the time. Well, what version should I read? You know, what, what's a good Bible translation? What, what should I be into? And it really just depends on, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on um, 
your maturity level, what kind of reader you are, uh, maybe just how, how you're able to comprehend things. Um, you might be someone maybe like for a newer believer or for a kid or something, um, like maybe the NLT would be better just because it's more of a, not a paraphrase, it is a translation, but it's more of a thought for thought. Um, and it's just, it just reads a lot easier. Um, and then, but maybe if you're like, you know, I want, I really want to get the word for word thing. I really want to dig in and do this study and, and, and be hardcore about it. Some people might not be able to read that kind of translation and get through it and get out the message that God wants to get to them because they're for, for whatever reason. But I would say whatever translation you decide to choose that when you do a study, like the question was, you know, should we avoid studying uh, certain translations? If you're going to do a study, I think it's always helpful to to reference at least a few different translations. You know, whether you read the word for word stuff, you know, more um, uh, more of a word for word translation in your daily readings. Maybe it's super helpful to me to to read something like the New Living Translation or the NIV or something. Or if you read the NIV or the NLT, you can reference one of the other translations. Be like, just kind of get a kind of cross-reference and get a really good idea of, of what the Lord is trying to communicate to you. All right. Well, we're going to let Pastor Michael move on to his question, and that was, what is your opinion on women pastors? Thanks, Pastor Chris. Really appreciate that. Just kidding. Uh, so as I said, if someone asked me this, the first thing I want to know is what they mean. I think like Eric did, it's always good to hear what people's um, definitions are. Sometimes kind of questions get to be a little lightning rod-ish. And so um, I guess the reason I asked that is like, what do they mean by pastor? Because I think pastoring just means to shepherd people. And I think to some degree, all of us Christians can and should do that. You know, I've been, I have been shepherded by lots of different men and women through the years. I can, some of the, the most the things that have stuck in my brain the most have come from uh, godly women that the Lord has put in my life or that I've got to listen to. Brent and I were listening to some, um, Elizabeth Elliot's been making the rounds at the church lately again. So I mean, we're just a profoundly godly lady with a lot of wisdom and have benefited from her and other stuff my mom has taught me, you know, it just sticks in my brain. So, so if someone means can women shepherd people, I would say, well, yeah, because they're Christians. But they have the Holy Spirit that can shepherd people. But I think what people generally mean by that has more to do with like our current kind of church structure. And so where, where a pastor probably wasn't like a New Testament job, you know, Pat, Timothy probably didn't go to Paul and like apply to be a pastor and fill out a job application and have 40 hours a week and a salary, that kind of thing. Pastor was um, one of the, the gifts that God lists of the five, five types of gifted people they supplies to the church. Um, but we didn't really see pastor listed as an office kind of in the same way that we do now. This doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different. But um, what we do see is the Bible speak about elders, um, and elders are the, the group that God appoints to uh, govern or watch over a church, to um, teach kind of authoritatively the doctrine of the church, what's the Bible saying. And so we'll look at those um, those, those verses here to sec. So I think that's really what people are asking. So I just would want to make sure if someone's like, do you think women can't take care of people? Like, nope, I sure believe that they can because they have taken care of me. But um, I think that the office of elder, the Bible speaks to with a little bit, with a different kind of exclusivity. So just some other things these guys have said, we always want to be people that don't go beyond what's written, right? First Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, I want you to learn not to exceed what is written. So as these guys said, we want to stick to what God's word says. And we want to be doers of the word 
uh, regardless of where that puts us. If it's something I like or don't like, I want to know what's true. So what does the Bible say about this? The first verse I'd actually like to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, I'll read it from the, uh, <clears throat> the NLT, which I feel like got a little shade there. Eric, thanks for letting me read that one. It's really nice of you. Just kidding. It says this. Um, I'm so glad, chapter 11, verse 1, I'm so glad you always keep me in your thoughts and that you're following the teachings I passed on to you. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians and saying, hey, I, I, you're keeping the things that I've taught you. And so he kind of reiterates some of those things that he's taught. In verse uh, 3, he says, but there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the reason I like this one, I think it's really useful, is it shows that in uh, the term I would use in God's economy, in God's way of ordering things, there's usually roles and structure to how those things play out. We can, and this is not really odd to us. We have that at work, right? You have usually a boss or people that are in charge in your home. You've got parents. Um, I don't know what other, in, even in your organizations that you're in, there's usually some kind of formal structure that shows the roles that people play. In the military, you've got a you know a very a very explicit formal structure um, and a role that people play. But what we don't make the mistake of doing is assuming that different roles mean necessarily that there's a difference in equality or worth to the people in those roles, right? So if you're a parent, you would never go to your child and say, "You're my kid, and you have to obey me because you're not as good as me." Right? That would be ridiculous and you'd be a terrible parent if you said that. Or if you have a boss who's like, mm, I'm your boss because I'm better than you, you should probably find another job. The guy's you know, a jerk. Um, in the military, I haven't been in the military. I've heard Mr. Handy could probably speak to this. Different people do take on that idea sometimes maybe with their role, but good, good leaders, good officers see the equality, the worth and value of the people that they're serving with, even though they serve in different roles. And so in this verse, we see this language where it says that God, speaking of God the Father, is the head of Christ. And would we say that Jesus, the Christ, is inferior in any way to God the Father? And of course, the answer would be no. The Trinitarian idea is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal within the Godhead, but that they have different roles. They have different roles, but are equal. This is really important to get right. So we are created in the image of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 says that God created them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And I think, honestly, just a little soapbox, I think the whole idea, there's a Latin phrase for this called the imago Dei. If you ever run into that, that's just the Latinizing of, of the word image of God. Um, is, is such a powerful truth for our cultural moment on so many levels that says that who we are in our being is reflected. We reflect God's image. He put his stamp on us and made us each in a certain way for certain purposes that he chose and decided for us. And that that gives us incredible, nearly infinite worth. It's not something that I go out and find for myself or choose for myself or stare at my navel and look into or ask the universe for. It's something that God gives to me. And again, just I won't belabor this, but this is one of the unique contributions of Christianity to the world. The idea of the Imago Dei is that every single human being, regardless of their intelligence or ability or social standing, has infinite worth before God and is therefore worthy of protection. 
where many cultures that don't have that as a basis, their ethics can devolve very much into um, societies where people are viewed as inherently less than. So the Imago Dei gives us this, this great reservoir of truth to understand who we are and our worth and value. And it's so cool, I think, in Genesis that he says, male and female, he created them. Because, of course, throughout history, there have been cultures and people that, that rolled into some kind of bizarre patriarchy where men are superior to women. Even the Jewish people got into this. One of the uh, traditional prayers was that, thank you, God, that I have not been born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was what a, a Jewish man might pray. Not okay. That's a total abrogation of the image of God, which says that male and female both are co-equal bearers of the Imago Dei. But it does also make that distinction between men and women. They're not the same. So just as in the Godhead, we see the equality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but different roles. Within God's creation, humanity, we have equality of worth and value, but we're different. Men and women, he created us differently. So our way of bearing the image of God to the world looks different depending on the various roles he's assigned us. That's a good thing. It's not a denigration. It's actually a, a gift from God that we get to carry that into the world. So um, there's more we could say about that, but I'll kind of move forward here. I'll make sure I stay in time. So God is the one who chooses the roles for each of us. Now, this is a very un-American idea where we're taught from the time we're young that if you uh, believe it, you can achieve it, you know, and, and uh, be all you can be. And uh, what's, the, what's Disney line? Anything your heart desires, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a fun song when Jiminy Cricket sang it, but it's not true. Turns out it's not true. That our actual fulfillment and, and uh, highest, the highest thing we can achieve in life is doing what it is we were made for by God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that you and I are his workmanship. And we've talked about this before. The Greek word there is this poema. The idea is a work of art, that we're God's work of art created in him for good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk in. So he's got a plan for your life and mine. That's a wonderful truth. But a corollary means that there are some things that he's not appointed for me to walk in or for you to walk in. He has good things for you and me, but not everything. So there's times in life, and this is such a profoundly important truth to get as a believer, is that there are times when your good and kind father will tell you, no, this is not for you. And then you will make a choice of whether you'll believe him that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect, and follow him, or you'll say, I'm going to do my own thing and punch my ticket for Nineveh, or take that fruit, or marry that person, or do whatever. And the Bible is littered with those stories of people who are just like us said, no, Lord, I don't think your way is best. I think I want to do my own thing. But our best move is always to uh, trust him on that, that we're his workmanship created for good things that he's prepared for us. So roles that he gives us don't always reflect our desire. Sometimes there are things God assigns to me to do that I don't want to do. If you have been a parent, you know this because you have changed diapers. It doesn't always reflect your aptitude. Remember the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, God's chosen sometimes the foolish and the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. God chose, you know, fishermen to be his disciples. You have Paul later who's an educated guy, but for the most part, these were uneducated, untrained men that later on they take note of as having been with Jesus. So they weren't necessarily the kind of guys you'd think would be most qualified for the role God chose them for. 
First um, Corinthians chapter 12, 11, and 18 kind of make this point that in the body of Christ, he's gifted each of us and arranged us. I really like that language, put us in the body just as he desired. That the fact that you're part of Coastline and Chris and me and Marcus and, and Eric and all of you, it's not a coincidence that we're here meeting and only. We've been appointed by God for this time, this era, this place to be part of this body. It's his plan. He's the head of the church. And you can see this pattern of him making these choices um, throughout the Bible. So, for example, um, if you, to serve at the tabernacle or later the temple, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. You had to be a Levite. It didn't matter if you were a, a little boy from Judah and you had studied the Torah your whole life and your whole dream was just that someday I could put those staves from the tabernacle on my shoulder if I work really hard and do good in Sunday school. Nope, it didn't matter. You couldn't do it. You weren't from the tribe of Levi. And if you wanted to be a priest, the only way you could do that is if you were a descendant of Aaron. You had to be from the, the Aaronic priesthood in order to do that. It didn't matter uh, what you wanted to be or how qualified you were. You had to be from the right uh, family. You had to have... Um, you had to have Levi's jeans in order to be, come on. Okay. David succeeds Saul, right? Saul is the king and he has children. We know that Jonathan is one of David's uh, best friends, right? Growing up, Jonathan from all accounts is a really good guy. He fights the Lord's battles. He's a man of faith. Remember he says, oh, let's go up and see the Lord could work for us. But God doesn't choose Jonathan, he chooses David. And Jonathan, I love this about him, backs the Lord's choice of David, even though it meant a position that he would never occupy, that others would have expected him to do, that he may have even been qualified to do, but God chose David. Love this story. Jonathan's actually one of my heroes. I think he's great. God chose uh, Solomon and not David to build the temple. David, again, the man after God's own heart, the guy, the sweet psalmist of Israel, but God says, hey, it's a great idea that you want to build the temple. It's not for you. I'm going to have your son do it. God chose Moses and not his older siblings. Aaron and Miriam took exception to this later in Numbers 12 and say, hey, hasn't God also spoken through us? Aren't we also gifted? And they were right, absolutely. But that was not a role that God had chosen for them. And that kind of leads us right into where we're at. So 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Titus 1 so I'll just give those again, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 2, and Titus 1 are um, key passages where Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, says, hey, I'm writing to you this letter so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith. Like the purpose of this letter is so that you'll know how to do some stuff at church. This is how this should work. And so having given us that letter, when we read it, we can see how God wanted his church organized. So here's 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder or desires the office of an overseer, your translation might say, overseer or presbyter or elder are interchangeable terms, he desires an honorable position. So an elder must be a, does anybody have it there? Anybody following along? Must be what? A man. An elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. Now, this language is important here. The literal rendering is a one-woman man. Could a woman be a one-woman man? 
No, I don't think so. It doesn't seem like that would work linguistically. I know, it's true. Eric's, Eric's making a joke. Okay. Yeah. He, he, so he must exercise self-control, live wisely, have a good reputation, must enjoy having guests in his home, must be able to teach. By the way, notice it says able to teach. It's not talking about, I point this out because in our culture today, sometimes we go find the most entertaining speaker, and that's actually not the biblical qualification. It says you've got to be able to handle God's word well, but not that you're like this dynamic, you know, dude with a podcast or something. I don't know. He must not be a heavy drinker or given to wine or violent. He must not be gentle. Excuse me. He must be gentle. <laughs> <There's> some, <laughs> he must be gentle, not quarrelsome, not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? And he goes on from there. So the, the qualifications for an elder are to be male and then to have certain character that's involved here. It's not primarily about giftedness, but it does seem very clear that God has laid this out and made it an office for men. And this chapter follows right on the heels of the end of chapter two. See, that's a really deep insight that I have there about counting. But the end of chapter two ends this way. He says, verse 12, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them, or I do not allow women to teach or have authority over a man as the traditional translation let them listen quietly, or you might have peaceably. That's probably a better translation of that. And then look at the reasons that Paul gives, and I'll tell you why this matters. He says, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. Do you remember how we talked about the Imago Dei, that in the beginning God created man and woman equal in his sight to bear different roles? Paul's appeal is not an appeal to any circumstance at that time, any cultural norms, but it's an appeal to the order of creation. He goes back to Genesis. And there's, there's more we could say from that, but I'll just leave it there for the moment and say, the reason I bring that up is because of some of the reasons people object to this view that, uh, the, that elders, the office of elder, would be reserved for men. Titus makes, uses similar language, so I won't go into it, but you can look at that later if you want to. So... Not all men can be elders either, right? This is not something where if you're a man and you just desire to do it, you can. Paul says it's a good thing if you desire it, but then he gives qualifications for what that's going to be. And I think beyond just the qualifications, you have to also be chosen by the Lord. So for instance, at our church, um, Pastor Chris usually will look out among the body and he'll, we're always praying as, as a group, God, would you be raising up other leaders for all kinds of areas of ministry in the church? And of course, that includes elders. And then he may put someone forward. Hey, this, you know, Joe Blow, he's been around the church about three years, been watching him and his family, and he's you've seen him teaching with the kids. I've heard him handle God's word. He seems like he's pretty accurate and he's tracking with us. And I'm seeing this character. We should pray about it. We'll pray. And if we feel like the Lord confirms that call, then Chris will, you know, talk to him and go, go from there. I say that because just because, for example, I'm an elder right now at Coastline, let's suppose the time comes that God tells me I need to leave and go somewhere else. I can't walk into a church with a special card that says, I've been an elder at Coastline. You're welcome. You know, no, I, I, it's up to the Lord to choose what to do with my life. He may send me somewhere and do something completely different than he's done with me here, right? So, um, that's, that goes with being an assistant pastor. So I realize the question says, what's your opinion on women pastors? But I think what people really are asking is, hey, do you think that women can be in the office of an elder? And I think scripturally, we don't see that. We see the opposite, the, that that role is reserved for men as a part of God's um, imago Dei. So here are oh, some other examples real quick. So we see the office of the role as elder reserved for men. We see that in Jesus. He chooses his disciples. All 12 are men. 
Paul in his ministry appoints men in the places that he goes, and we don't have any explicit examples of women in that role in the scripture. So what are the uh, arguments against that? Well, the, the first example that I think people often will bring up is they'll say, well, wait, what about the women in the Bible who do lead in some way or teach in some way? So there's some, there's some great examples, and I would like to talk more about this too. Uh, Deborah in Judges chapter 4, she's described as the judge of Israel at that time. And I'd read that whole story to you, but the short version is she's judging Israel, and there's a, Israel is backslidden spiritually. They're not following God. It's not a good spiritual time. And there's an enemy that's oppressing them. And she goes to this guy and she says, Barak, you, you need, God has called you to go and lead the army to fight this battle. And he's like, uh, I'll only go if you go with me. And she's like, okay, that's fine. I'll go with you. But because of that, a woman is going to get the honor of the defeat and not of the, the enemy commander, not you. So she seems to almost reprimand him for not being willing to step into a leadership role at that time that God was calling Barak to. Um, further, it's a narrative example and a narrative example that occurs at a time of spiritual um, unfaithfulness on Israel's part. It'd be really hard to use that as an example to say, this is God's pattern. But nevertheless, Deborah is a great example of a godly woman and God using her in a leadership role, but not one that's prescribed and not one that's happening at a time of spiritual prosperity and a woman who seems to be trying to call a man back to a leadership role, which he seems to be holding back from. Huldah is another one some people will bring up. It's in 2 Chronicles 34, and there's a parallel account in 2 Kings. And Huldah is the wife of a guy who has kind of an ignominious job. He's a keeper of the wardrobe. But at another time of spiritual decline in Israel's life, when they literally had lost the Bible, they, they find the Bible, and then they're like, oh, man, read this thing. We've been totally screwing up. We're in a lot of trouble. What are we going to do? And to find someone that they thought was reliable, to talk to them on God's behalf, they go and they find Huldah, which man, props to Huldah, but there's again, no dudes apparently willing to provide spiritual leadership at that time or able to do so. And so they go to Huldah and she speaks to them the word of God. She's a accredited prophetess. So again, awesome lady, bad time in the history of Israel and not something that's put forward as the pattern. It's the absence of men willing to lead and serve that seems to lead to this vacuum. Um, an example that doesn't fit that pattern would be Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila are often brought up in Acts 18. Apollos, who's a good, a good guy, is going around preaching, but is, he's a little off in some of the things he's saying. So Priscilla and Aquila invite him over for lunch. and are like, hey, let's talk about this. And they instruct him in the way of God more accurately. And some will make the point that the order that the names are listed, Priscilla, the wife, and Aquila, the husband, may imply a prominence on her part as opposed to Aquila. Now, this is a, a weak argument, in my opinion. Could be, but really, you're going to base a whole thing versus 1 Timothy and all these other clear passages based on the order that the husband and wife listed their names. It seems, seems a little rough there. A fourth one or a fifth one are uh, Junius in Romans chapter 16. Both these ladies occur in, in Romans. Romans 16 says uh, Paul is giving greetings to people. And in 16.7, he says, to Junius, my kinsman, and the language is something like uh, who is well known among the apostles. And there's a, there's a chance that one way you can translate that name is that it's actually a feminine name. So Paul's giving a greeting to a, femi- a female relative of his. Could just be a, uh, that she's of Jewish descent. We don't know. And that you could translate that to say not just well known among the apostles, but that she is an apostle. So again, in my mind, this is kind of a reach 
Uh, none of the translations that I've read actually render it that way. It's somebody coming in, it seems like with kind of an agenda, looking for something. Well, maybe this could be a woman and maybe it actually means that she's an apostle, but it doesn't fit any of the other clear passages of, of scripture. And then the last one is Phoebe, who it mentions as a servant of the church, which actually probably be a closer example to the word deacon, the, the word that's used there for servant. So I don't denigrate any of these. I, I actually think that one of the gifts that Christianity has given to the world that we need to, to speak up for is that wherever Christianity has gone on the face of the earth, it's elevated the position of women and the status of women, not denigrated it which is one of the accusations that our world makes against the Bible. It says, oh, Christians are always pushing women down. That's not historically true. And when you look at the New Testament story, who are the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection? Women. Who are the only ones who understand when Jesus is talking about dying at the cross? Women. The people who are going around supporting him beside the uh, disciples, there's a bunch of women in that group. Obviously, those five examples are five of the many godly women we can see throughout the scriptures. You think of Hannah, um, as well, Mary, Elizabeth, P Philip's daughters. Scripture is filled with godly women who have a prominent place and are used of God in profound ways, but they're not in the office of elder. That's it. It's the one thing. So um, that's that's one set of arguments. Um, I'll just say one more thing. I, I know I'm getting a little preachy here. Com the, the view that I would hold, that I think our church would hold, is what's called the complementarian view. I just thought I'd give you these terms because they might be helpful to you. And there's really two main views. One is the egalitarian view and one is the complementarian view. And the egalitarian view basically says men, men and women are equal and therefore all of the things that happen in the church are kind of the same. So all the roles are open. They're, in Christian marriage, there's not really this major distinction of headship, that's kind of a weird thing. No, because we're in Christ. And generally, one of the main verses they'll hang their hat on for that is in the book of Galatians. And I wrote it down. Where's my reference? Galatians chapter 3. Chapter 3, where he says, um, in Christ, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in him. So they'll say, hey, look, new things happen in Jesus. We've done away with all those categories. The problem, of course, is that the rest of the scripture, including the book of Galatians, doesn't do away with all those categories. It's talking about a unity and an inequality that we have in Christ that's true. But the, there were still Gentiles who were Christians, and there were still Jews that were Christians, and slaves that were Christians, etc., still operating in this world and fulfilling those roles. And so we say, yes, there are also men who are Christians fulfilling the roles of husband and father and elder and wives and women fulfilling, excuse me, and women fulfilling the role of wives and mothers, etc. So um, other arguments that people bring up, um, the patri this is the patriarchy and it will lead to the subjugation and denigration of women. Of course, there are men out there who do twist this. And if you're one of them, please stop it. We will fight you if you do this. Women are supposed to be uh, our, co -equal, our equal heirs. That's what Peter writes. He says, you're, you're equal heir in Christ, um, our partners in the gospel. And, um, I, and they have much to offer and teach us in the mission that Christ has given us. So if, don't use any of this as some means of lording it over or subjugation. That's absolutely non-Christian. No other way to say it. Um, and then the, the third argument is Paul is only addressing cultural problems of the day. The day were more sophisticated. So they say, well, women were largely uneducated back then, um, which was true. 
and that there may have been some chaos in church because of the new freedom that these women were having, and so they were shouting things out. And all of those things may, in fact, be true. I think it's useful to study that cultural context. But they'll say it's that cultural context that causes Paul to write these restrictive verses. The problem is Paul never mentions those things or appeals to those as a basis for his uh, restrictions. His restrictions are based on theology, the order in creation, and the presence of angels in 1 Corinthians 11, which don't, that's a wild one. So his arguments are based on, um, on non-cultural things, not based on culture. And let's end with this last thought. And this is a little edgy, so you can kick me off if you want for this. Could it be that it isn't, the problem that we face with this isn't actually a lack of clarity in the scripture, but is more our own unwillingness to trust God's word? right? Because in our cultural moment, this feels awkward. It's awkward for me to talk about it, right? Um, but maybe we can trust God's word on this. Maybe he knows something that we don't know. Maybe it's actually for our good. Might it be, thinking of the rapture verse, that because it doesn't make sense to us, that the enemy would take that and try to, to corrupt it, to really corrupt the expression of the imago day that God has given to you and me as men and women in our own day? Wasn't this his tactic in the garden? Yes. I was thinking about this in Genesis 3. He comes to Eve. There's one tree she can't have. And he says, hey, did God really say, he's questioning God's word, did God really say that you can't have that tree? And she's like, oh, no, we just can't, you know, or you can't eat from any tree in the garden. She's like, oh, no, no, we can eat from any tree, just not this one. If we even touch it, we'll die. She seems to have misquoted the, the Lord there. And then he says, oh, you won't surely die. No, you won't surely die. And so Eve uses her own understanding. She looks at the tree and she goes, man, that looks good. She goes, oh, you know, that would probably make me wise. And it looks good for food. And none of her reasoning was wrong. Eve was a perfect specimen of humanity at that point. No sin nature. She just looks at it and uses her own judgment instead of trusting God's word and makes a decision to take something that wasn't for her. And it costs her and her family profoundly. Now, lest we make it all about Eve here, think of there's a there's a there's a, a great statement to be made about Adam in this because it says when she takes the fruit, she gave it to her husband who was with her. And apparently Adam doesn't say anything. Having been the one at the time that God actually gave the prohibition about the tree to, Adam remains silent. Doesn't say, honey, no, don't touch that, don't eat that. Or when she hands it to him, say, No, I can't do that. He just goes along with it. He really abdicates the role of leadership that God would have given to Adam. And so you really have two people who step away from God's word and step away from their, their image bearer responsibilities and roles that he given to them. And it was devastating. Now, I am not saying that if you go to a church that's got a lady and she's teaching the Bible, that that's what's about to happen. That's not my case. I'm just saying it's odd to me or interesting to me that in a case where it seems like God's word is really clear, we're more frustrated because it doesn't make sense to us in some way. Can't we just trust him on that? I'll say what Pastor Chris said earlier too. This is a secondary issue. If you're at church and you're like, man, Michael Slifkoff, you are a moron. You don't know anything. I absolutely believe that women can be elders and, and pastors and all that. Cool. I, I disagree with you for the reasons that I gave, but you're my sister. You're my brother in the Lord and... and um, May the Lord give us clarity on those things. And I'll just say too, when I say all this, I'm convinced uh, that this is true from God's word, but I am very open to being persuaded. If God showed up and there was verses I'd never read before, I'm not new revelation, but could show me that, hey, you've got it all wrong. Actually, no, this isn't true. I will go with it. I'm not here to defend 
Um, there's a lot of times when I wish God would let me stop being a pastor and an elder. <laughs> It'd be a lot less complicated. But I think this is what he made me to do. So anyway, I'm done. <laughs> that was very thorough. Does anyone else have anything to add? One thing I have um, observed about some different groups or denominations that, that, that do believe women could be and should be pastors is that there's a kind of a either a misunderstanding or a uh, or just a departure from biblical leadership as a whole of, of their church movement. Uh, whereas a lot of churches these days, um, their leadership consists of um, business boards, financial boards, pulpit committees, where they don't actually have um, elders that are appointed but they have these board members that are voted in and they go through every two years and they sort of cycle through every two years, just like you would normally run a business. Um, they don't have deacons that are chosen by the congregation and then appointed by the elders. They run their churches more. They have pastors that are actually voted in by the congregation or hired much like a, like you would post a job posting or something. Um, and so I, I believe that that leadership model is a departure from the biblical leadership model. And if you don't have um, elders that are appointed uh, according to the qualifications set forth in the Bible and, and deacons at the same time, that's, that's the two offices we see in the Bible is elder and deacon. And what they do is they, they take all these examples like Michael cited of women in public ministry and they say, see all these examples of women in public leadership ministry and they don't, but they don't actually have that office of elder in their church. So they say, see, obviously we can take women and put them in this role of public leadership ministry because there really isn't a clear differentiation in the way their leadership structure mm. is made up in, the, in, in some churches. So it's I think that's where world. some of that can stem from. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, this this really will be short, but uh, you know Jesus when he's when he's praying his high priestly prayer, he says, "Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth." And so, that was his desire for us as as believers and for the church to be set apart, to be different, uh, in that we are people that are following God's word, which is truth. And so, yeah, that's going to look different than the world. That's 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 a good thing, and it honors the Lord. And so that, that should be our heart, too, to be in agreement with the high priestly prayer of Christ, to follow God's word the best we can, right? The best we can. And so um, Michael's laid out a really good, you know, biblical case, and I just think that's, that's what the word of God says. Amen. All right. I'm going to try to wrap it up with my question here. that They left me only 15 minutes to talk about. Um. So the question I got was, should we avoid worship music created by churches with bad or misleading theology? Key here, there's the other part of the question, even if the limericks are biblical. And I'm actually kind of glad we got this question because I feel like over the last three or four years, I've, I've actually had to answer this. You know, I've had people come to me multiple times asking this very same thing. So this is kind of the first time I had to, I, I got to sit down and actually kind of organize my thoughts. So um, much like these guys, I, I want to start out by looking at what God's word says about worship because that's 
our ultimate authority, right? That's, that's what guides us. So we're gonna look at the conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman that he met at the well in John chapter four, verses 19 through 14. And so if you remember, he comes to this well, there's a woman there, you know, and he proceeds to talk to her and knows things about her. And, um, you know, she ultimately gets to this place of understanding and believing who he, who he is. And um, it says in, in verse 19, it says, sir, the woman said, you, you must be a prophet because he basically just told her something about herself that no, he, there's no way he could have known. And it says in verse 20, so tell me, she asked him this question, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount uh, Gerizim where our ancestors worship. So she's talking about God. She's asking this practical question, you know, in that, you know, do we really have to go to Jerusalem to worship God? Why can't we worship him here? And so really when I, I read this, I, I think like this, 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 this argument or this, this, you know, this argument between Jews and Samaritans or this discussion, it, it's not so different than what we see today still in the church, especially regarding worship. We still disagree in so many ways on how somebody should worship the Lord properly, right? You still have these disagreements on, should worship music be loud? Should it be soft? Should it involve instruments or, or no instruments or only certain instruments? Um, you know, should it be a certain style of music? Should it more be kind of more traditional like hymns or, you know, more contemporary, you know, you can just keep going on and on. There's disagreements and how we should worship God, you know, all the time. And it says in verse 21, Jesus' reply to her was, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Now, specifically, you know, under the law, they were to go to the temple to worship God. But what he's referencing is when, um, the, the, the law would be fulfilled in his death and resurrection, when sins would be forgiven and, and through faith in Jesus, like God would come to reside, his spirit would reside in people. And um, it's interesting to me that, uh, um, you know, he's, he's kind of pointing out like this, 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 this thing you're discussing, it really isn't what matters to God, you know, where or how you're, you're worshiping God. And he goes on to say in verse 22, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. The father is looking for those who will worship him that way for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I think it's interesting that he kind of points out you know, almost in a sense what the Samaritans are doing wrong and what the Jews are doing right because he's, he's kind of giving this and then he follows it up with how God truly wants them to worship because he in a sense is pointing out like you Samaritans, you, ha you have the, the right heart. Like you, you wanna know God, you wanna worship him, but you actually don't know who it is you're worshiping like the Jews do. The Jews know who they're worshiping because they have the word of God, but they have the wrong heart. They have the wrong spirit because they don't really want to know who God is. Otherwise they would have recognized Jesus and they weren't recognizing him by and far, right? So he kind of points this out and he says, actually God's looking for people that both worship with in, in spirit and in truth. So to say that we must worship God in spirit means among other things that it must originate from within us. Our, our worship must be sincere. It must be 
from the heart. It's, it's a response we have that's motivated by our love for God and the gratitude we have for him and what he's done for us. A response to who God is, his awesomeness. And as such, all worship is centered or focused on God. The kind of God worship God's looking for, that's, that's our focus because it, 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 it's a response that comes as a result of God and who he is and what he's done for us. And the other thing I believe the word spirit here also is a reference to is, is the Holy Spirit. And the reason I believe that because the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about what a true Christian or what a true believer is, in Philippians 3, 3, he says, for we who worship by the spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Now, in this section of scripture, he's kind of addressing these these legalistic, you know, Christians that would say, you gotta do this, you gotta be circumcised, you know, it's faith in Jesus, but you gotta do these things. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Those of us who worship by the spirit of God, who have the Holy Spirit inside of us, who are, are, are the ones that are truly circumcised because we have no faith in anything except Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so um, what we know from scripture is that it's the Holy Spirit that awaken, awakens us, if you will, reveals to us who God is in his awesomeness. It's the Holy Spirit who, in a sense, stirs us up to be thankful for like who God, like reveals his word to us so we understand, man, we have so much to rejoice in in our relationship with God through our faith in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to seeing God is so good. I mean, look at, not only because his word says it, but look at all the things he's done for us in our life. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to experience and know the love of God in our lives. And as such, it's the Holy Spirit that should be orchestrating our services and leading us in our worship of God. And that, that's why you would hear us as a church often say that we want our services, we want our worship, we want the teaching of the word of God to be led by the spirit or to be spirit led because it's the Holy Spirit inside of us that's helping us know God, helping us understand him, reminding us of his goodness, reminding us of his thankfulness. Now, so Jesus says that. He says it should be in spirit, okay? But he also says our worship must be in truth or that worship must conform to the revelation of God in scripture and not contradicting. That's what truth is, right? I mean, the world would say truth is something else, but truth is really relevant unless it's something that God has said in his word. Those are the absolutes that we can be certain of, right? And worship is to be grounded in the truth of God's word. And it's important to note that Jesus says both of these attributes of our worship are necessary as you do see kind of some tend to prefer to worship only in spirit, but don't take regard to what they're singing or what they're saying being truth according to God's word because they might think that focusing on truth has the potential to quench the spirit. That's what I've heard before, you know, by certain people. So the this, this standard basically by which they judge the success of their worship or the validity of their worship is the the thrills and the chills they experience, the emotions they have, all right? Now, make no mistake, worship doesn't that doesn't engage our emotions isn't right either because Jesus himself rebuked that type of worship with the religious leaders in Matthew 15, seven through nine, where he says, you hypocrites, 
Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. See, true worship should most certainly engage our heart, but any affection or feeling or emotion that's stirred up by false doctrine is wrong, is not right, it's wrong. Now, others on the other side of things might prefer to worship only in truth and can actually be offended. I've actually heard this kind of more often in the last couple of years. They can actually be offended at the idea of having some sort of an emotional response to worshiping God Now, we most certainly want to sing only what is true according to God's word, but I would argue that in doing so, it should be impossible to do it without feeling a heartfelt emotion if our focus is truly on the Lord and who he is and what he's done for you. I like what Pastor John Piper had to say about this, about worship. He said, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Now here's, thing, here's something I wanna point out. You can still be a worshiper in spirit and in truth, and both these things. And it does not mean at all that you have to worship the way other people at your church do or that worship should be uniform by any means, all right? If the truth of God's word moves you to lift your hands, dance, or shout aloud, by the way, all things we see examples of in the Bible, so they're biblical, God bless you. If the truth of God's word leads you to solemn reverence as you remain seated and immovable, just focusing on God and his goodness, God bless you, also biblical. We just wanna make certain that in either case, we're worshiping in both spirit and truth because as I read in John 4, it is just such people the Father is seeking, amen? Amen. And when we see worship in God's word, it always follows those guidelines. If it isn't following those guidelines, it's usually somebody getting rebuked for something, all right? And that's why it is our focus as a leadership at this church regarding worship. Those things, those are our guidances in worship and in truth. God focused and theologically sound. So back to the question, to instill a guideline such as we aren't gonna sing any music by churches with bad or misleading theology, even if the lyrics are in spirit and in truth, would be adding a requirement above and beyond what God has actually required. And typically when we do that, when we put restrictions on ourselves that God hasn't asked us to, which we can be prone to doing as people, it can lead to problems. Now I know some people who have chosen to place this restriction upon themselves, solid brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the name of not wanting to support what they consider false doctrine. And if that is a personal conviction that you have or someone else have, I, I would say follow it. But here's the key. It should not be expected of others that don't have that same conviction. 
and they should not think that they are better Christians for some reason just because they have that conviction. Remember what Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for in Matthew 15, seven through nine, for teaching their man-made ideas as commands of God. It kind of falls into that category, right? And a self-created problem that I see with taking that stand, which is, you know, these, these are some of the reasons why we don't take that stance as a church, is that it's insinuating that someone might agree with all the theology of a person or church simply by singing that their music. And if that applies to worship, why wouldn't it apply to other areas of my life? In which case now, I gotta be careful about quoting guys like Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon who are known as great theologians, great Christians, right? But who I don't agree with all of their theology, right? So because I don't agree with all their theology, if I'm quoting their verse, all of a sudden I'm endorsing one thing they said, but that must mean that I'm endorsing everything that they have ever said. So that becomes a problem. And before you know it, if you don't start consistently applying this restriction to all areas of your life, then at some point, maybe even inadvertently, you're gonna become hypocritical. Not to mention that worship songs today aren't always written by the people singing them. So it's going to be, so is it only gonna be music that's written by somebody that has the different theological beliefs that I boycott or just the people with different beliefs that sing the songs? Because that's gonna take a whole lot of research on my part to figure that out and be consistent in applying it if that's the case. And a lot of worship songs are sung by several different worship leaders that have all types of theological beliefs. So can I sing a song if it's sung by a Calvary Chapel guy, even though it's also sung by somebody at a church with a theology I disagree with? Also, how are you going to define what's bad or misleading theology? This can be very subjective depending on the church you attend or your church background. One worship song might be from a hyper-charismatic church, but another worship song might be from a guy that is Catholic, I use those examples because there's a lot of worship songs by people I know that fall into that category, both of which have theology I disagree with. And, and what about some of those guys that wrote the hymns that we grew up with? Because some of that theology, if you look into it, is even border, like I can think of one that's borderline anti-Semitic, all right? So we just hear about different things now. We weren't alive back then, but hundreds of years, this was an argument back then too, all right? Now, if you go that route, I think that what you soon find is that you're either gonna become hypocritical at some point, maybe even inadvertently, um, or you're gonna start singing songs um, by some people with different theology while avoiding others, all right? And, and, and again, it, it's just not gonna be consistent. Or you're gonna basically be so limited in your Christian music category that you're gonna run out of songs to sing or you're gonna have to start writing your own. Worship is one of those things that for some reason the church has a history of feeling the liberty to put restrictions on that either the Bible doesn't require or are flat out contradictory to what God actually says in his word. And I think it's because we like to think of music, again, is what was talking about with the, the, the roles in the churches, we look at, it from a worldly standpoint, right? And therefore, we wanna tailor it to our preferences. 
But worship isn't music, and it surely isn't about us and our preferences, but rather all about God. And therefore, it's only governed by what he says, which practically is a lot easier to manage than the restrictions that people can sometimes self-oppose on themselves. Amen? You guys have anything to add to that? I asked the person that I is a worship leader that I really respect about this, and uh, just, it's been a, a thing that, you know, a controversy, I guess, and I didn't really know what to think, so I go, hey, what, what do you think about this? What's up with this worship thing? And I see the the danger of it and like the, uh, of getting into these songs that are sung and purported by these churches that just have some crazy theology that I definitely don't agree with. And, uh, but the answer he gave me was something like this. It's just, it's a slippery slope because you say, okay, we're not going to listen to them. Then you start examining all these different artists and singers and you go, well, can't do him either. He's got this thing going on or, oh, see, he had this one little word in that one song and, uh, got to cross him off the list. This guy over here, uh, can't do him either. And then what, what people do and what some, I don't know if it's denominations, groups, whatever, what they do is they go, we're only going to sing worship songs that are directly from scripture. So we're only going to sing songs out of the Bible because that weeds out all the bad people with bad theology and bad things. We're only going to sing songs out of the scriptures that are directly from the Bible. And he goes, well, what about the Psalms? David wrote a lot of the Psalms. He was an adulterer mm-hmm. and a murderer and he, he was a sinner. So are you going to cross all of his out of there too? Because mm-hmm. he wasn't a very good guy even though he was forgiven. So it's like this, again, made sense to me. It's just a slippery slope of how, how far do you go and where do you stop and where do you draw the line? Um, but then also I think of it as like um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he's talking about all things are lawful, but, but not all things are helpful. So maybe if I have freedom and liberty in Christ to listen to whatever worship song I want to, um, and, and worship God in spirit and truth, I'm going to refrain from listening or playing those types of songs around people who I know maybe have a conviction not to, so as not to offend them. Um, like he says, uh, anyways, he's talking about food, but he says food will not commend us to God. We're talking about eating meat or not eating meat. It's like, what song we sing or listen to or play or not listen to or play won't commend us to God, but it's how we worship God. Mm. So it's, it's kind of, a, we have to consider our brothers and sisters and be conscious of them, I think. But at the same time, we can't, you can't set rules and draw lines. That's up to the Holy Spirit to do mm. for us individually, like Chris kind of explained. So. And, and I would just add to that, just because we're out of time, but just that as a, as a church, I actually like the diversity of our worship because we have multiple worship leaders and they all have kind of their own style um, and we kind of do a multitude of songs. You know, we do hymns, we do contemporary stuff, kind of different styles or whatnot. And we're ultimately, you know, they're, they're seeking the Lord and, and being led by the Spirit. Like that's, I already pointed that out. That's kind of our heart, you know, to do it in spirit. But the other thing is like, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear people's preferences, but our church is very diverse, all right, diverse in the sense that you got people from all different type of backgrounds that grew up with all different styles of worship. So to, to think that we can just kind of cater to someone's specific preferences, that's really unreasonable, you know? Like, and, and I would say 
that I've used this example before when talking to somebody because like, again, th what I'm talking about is just personal preference because that's subjective, all right? And that's important to understand. We've got biblical guidance and then we have our personal preference. There's nothing the matter with having personal preference, but personal preference doesn't mean that, what that means is not everyone else shares that preference, all right? So sometimes, you know, I think we need to remind ourselves that just because I like this or I feel this way, that's not the case for everyone else, all right? And if, if we were trying to make everyone happy, that's just impossible, all right? We can't do that. So the best we can do is go with God's guidance and seek him to lead us in what we believe as a church family he wants to do as far as in this church, in, in worship style. And again, if our focus is in the right place, as long as it's in spirit and truth, it shouldn't really matter. I, I, and I'm speaking from experience because I remember when worship was about what I wanted it to be. And if it wasn't what I wanted it to be, it was like, oh man, I don't like this song. I don't like this person singing this. And it was a distraction because my focus was on myself and what I wanted instead of God. When my focus, when God taught me, hey, that's not, that's not what worship is about. In spirit and truth, it's on me. Then it became a lot easier for me no matter what the style is. If it's in spirit and truth, I can worship because as long as my focus is in the right place, I have every reason to worship. Amen? Amen. So thinking of that old mantra in essentials, unity. So God's word, yes. unity. In non-essentials, liberty. A lot of different ways to do stuff. Let it be. And in all things, love. Amen. And I was thinking, with, you brought up that thing from Romans 14 about how it's always interesting with that weaker brother where it says, basically, the mature people are the ones who are supposed to... They, they don't have the rules. The mature, the mature... The scripture points out in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, like Michael said, it's the mature believers that actually don't put restraints on themselves. They don't set the rules, but it's the weaker brother who sets that rule for himself that I can't do this, can't do that, can't do that. Mm. So I think that's a challenge for me sometimes when I get snarky about my preferences. Like, Michael, the real move of the Spirit here is to be gracious about this stuff. Don't complain. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're out of time now. We did get a couple more questions, but they weren't follow-ups. They were kind of different topics. So those, if you ask those questions, they will be added to the list, and we will get to them in the coming months. But thank you guys for tuning in. Um, a, a plug for starting next month, since we're in the summer months, we are gonna be adding a barbecue before question and answer night. So from 5.30 to 6.30, we will be having burgers and hot dogs here at the church in the fellowship hall. So you can come out here and get dinner straight after work or whatever, and then uh, you can stick around for uh, the question and answer teaching. So uh, God bless you guys. Have a great evening.